your need-to-know cultural snapshot of Wisconsin and beyond. This is What's on Tap with Sandy Max. A deep dive into all things intriguing, riveting, and entertaining. And now your host for the evening, here's Sandy Max. Welcome to this supersized edition of What's on Tap tonight. Stay with me through 7.30 p.m. Before the Milwaukee Bucks take on the Denver Nuggets with Marquette alumnus Doc Rivers taking his place as the new head coach. Till then, I'm Sandy Max. Thanks for joining with me. Joining me and on What's on Tap tonight, you'll learn about Al Capone. The Chicago crime boss who capitalized on Prohibition nearly 100 years ago and a new Milwaukee PBS documentary about Capone's Wisconsin Connections. It premieres tonight on Channel 10 and you will hear from the producers. Who do you know doing dry January? Go Brewing founder Joe Chura returns to What's on Tap to check in on my progress and share motivational tips to keep going if you are. And he's going to let us know how life in the non-alcoholic beer brewing business has been going this month. And what is the punishment for stealing Dorothy's ruby slippers? Wizard of Oz fans, you might be surprised by the story of the stolen shoes that Judy Garland wore in the film and how it resolved in court today. Oz historian and entertainment journalist Ryan Jay is going to join me in the studio with his reaction, as well as an update on his Oz-related documentary. So that's all coming up. But first, you know me, I'm a huge music fan, and we've got... A concert announcement. If you didn't see already, uh, this is going to be some grinding rock coming to American Family Insurance Amphitheater in August. It's Rob Zombie, Alice Cooper on their Freaks on Parade tour. Tuesday night, August 27th, outside at American Family Insurance Amphitheater. It's going to grind my gears and make me happy. I think it's going to be a fun night. They're also on the bill, ministry and filter. So that's a big dose of some 90s grindy rock. I know all these bands are still uh, making music, but that's going to be great. And uh, those tickets are going on sale Friday at 10 a.m. And uh, good news, because you're listening to me right now, I can help you out with uh, a pre-sale code if you want to get that uh, pre-sale code and get a jump on tickets tomorrow, uh, go to the Rob Zombie website, and the code is FREAKS24, F-R-E-A-K-S, FREAKS24, because it's the Freaks on Parade Tour. I just think that's highly entertaining, but Alice Cooper is one of the coolest dudes that you'd ever want to meet. He's got that it factor. I've seen him a few times now, including at the Wisconsin State Fair several years ago, but he's one of those people who just walks out on stage and has a presence. I saw him at Summerfest with the Hollywood Vampires, the band that he's in with Johnny Depp and Joe Perry from Aerosmith, and they play a bunch of party songs with Hollywood Vampires, but honestly, Alice Cooper just walks out and you go, oh, oh. There he is. And I've had a chance to talk with Alice Cooper a couple times in my radio career. And in 2022, I worked with Milwaukee Mayor's Office and some fans to get the very first official Alice Cooper Day declared. Now, without the eyeliner and the guillotine on stage, he's a really down-to-earth cool dude. He's a Midwesterner. He grew up in Michigan, in Detroit, and uh, he loves to golf, and he really does embrace his pop culture side. He does not shy away from his famous quote from the movie Wayne's World like this. Mealy Wake. 
<laughs> I actually had people telling me after a while, could you not Iliwake? Could you just say Milwaukee? You know, people from Milwaukee were getting tired of that bit. No, not <laughs> ever. You're talking about a city where we have the bronze fawns. Embrace the joy. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Plus the positive connection to Wisconsin with your guest appearance on that 70s show with the BOA. That's right. And, and Wayne's World, you know. So don't miss out on the chance to see Alice Cooper. If you have never, ever seen Alice Cooper, it really is a bucket list type show. He will be in Milwaukee with Rob Zombie on their Freaks on Parade Tour. That date, circle it on your calendar, August 27th at American Family Insurance Amphitheater. Also, ministry and filter on that bill. Tickets on sale Friday. And again, that pre-sale code, go to Rob Zombie's website tomorrow and use the code FREAKS24 and get a discount and a jump on those tickets. Back with Capone. (laughs) Do you love true crime? Are you curious about how one of the iconic figures from the Chicago mob, Al Capone, spent his time in Wisconsin? Find out from two Milwaukee PBS producers next on What's on Tab. Welcome back to What's on Tap on WTMJ. I'm your host, Sandy Max, and true crime has captured the attention and curiosity of people for ages. 100 years ago, prohibition was happening and organized crime boomed. Al Capone of the Chicago outfit was a true boss. To share a lot more about Capone's story and connection to Wisconsin are the duo who created a new documentary. It is my pleasure to welcome to the WTMJ studio my Milwaukee PBS teammates, producer Brian Ewig and producer Tracy Newman. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us, Sandy. What is the name of your new documentary that will be world premiering on Milwaukee PBS this month? El Capone, Prohibition in Wisconsin. Prohibition? Dry January. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Kind of goes with that. But it's fascinating if you think it was 100 years ago that Prohibition was happening. What is it that inspired the two of you to create this documentary? Well, I think the documentary comes from two things. It comes from my love of history, and um, anyone who knows me knows that I'm obsessed with film noir, old movies, and uh, that's kind of where the inspiration came from. And then, you know, with all that history here that we have with the breweries in Milwaukee and this in the city, it just seemed like a slam dunk. And then the more and more we dug into it, you know, we got these Al Capone. Everyone's got an Al Capone story once you start talking about prohibition. So really? Everyone, everyone drove cars for Al Capone. Everyone had a place for Al Capone. Everyone, Al Capone was at this bar one time. So, you know, it was a lot of weeding out that kind of stuff. But once we found that Al Capone angle, um, we really started honing in on that. And, um, it wasn't until we found up in Manitowish Waters, the Manitowish Waters Historical Society, Babe Hawkinson had just handed them 20, 30 years of correspondence between her grandfather and Al Capone. She was going through letters for when her mother died, found all these letters. Hey, friend, it's me, Al Capone. Oh, my gosh. Do you have any of that moonshine I was looking for? Can you send it down to Milwaukee? That's crazy because you would think... You know, I mean, he was so successful. You do that. You're so successful because you cover your tracks. Absolutely. And, you know, and they said if that letter had that letter not been sitting in Babe's house for 70, 80 years, this letter could have implemented him for moonshine for all those crimes that they never were able to get him for. This would have been that evidence. Uh, Yeah, because they were only able to get him on. It was a tax evasion. Yeah. My gosh. uh, I have a clip from Babe. Would you like me to, to like to hear a little bit of Babe? Absolutely, yeah. 
Al Capone was coming up for a particular reason, to look for property. So my grandfather overlooked, to an extent, overlooked his business end and looked at this as an opportunity, one, to sell property, but also looked at it as a friendship. That was a secret that was kept, and it was kept because of my grandparents. I think that shows to who they were and why he felt as he did to come up north with his friends and felt safety. He must have felt trusting and safe, like I said, to, to write those, those letters. That is still, that just is fascinating to me. There were letters where he was, he was buying rocking horses for their children. And he was saying, how is your son? How is that little slugger doing? I would like to be a manager for his baseball team. These are the kind of letters that Al Capone is writing. It was an incredible find to find these letters after all these years. And this is a way to keep history alive when you really are telling stories instead of just memorizing dates and locations and facts. Like this really humanizes somebody who, you know, just became this mafioso character. Yeah, that was what was really interesting to find these things that people really didn't know about and then to bring them out so the public now knows, you know, firsthand what kind of a, a person he was. What's one of the biggest revelations that each of you individually had as you were creating this documentary about Al Capone? For me, making the cold call to Diane Capone, it was uh, Al Capone's granddaughter. Talking to her, she was really nice. She was very candid about her grandfather. She didn't make him out to be a hero. Um, she was very honest. So I liked her right away. And that, that was pretty neat just, just to know that, you know, she, that's her grandfather. And that's got to be an interesting truth to accept. A lot of us talk about, well, okay, we've got skeletons in the closet. Well, this skeleton's out dancing around and everybody knows yeah, <laughs> your connection to it. And you can't hold her accountable for things her grandfather did. And, and you can't expect her to answer to those things. That's not fair. You know, and so... And she would have had a very different relationship with him as a granddaughter. Yes. So her relationship with her grandfather is he passed away when she was four years old. So she has those memories of him as, as a grandfather, which a lot of people have very fond memories of their grandparents at that age. A lot of these stories she ends up telling are Al Capone's wife, May, ended up living well into her 70s. So Diane and May ended up conversing quite a bit over those 30 years, and that's how she compiled all of these family stories that she shared with us. I wonder if she had letters like uh, like Babe's grandfather did. <laughs> no, although it was interesting. We, we had the screening the other night, and Babe said, I really need to talk to Diane. I need to hook up, and we need to to form that bond again from multiple generations back. I think that'd be great for them to hook up and talk about. and Because they have an understanding that really no one else has. Exactly. And most of the people that knew him are no longer around. That would be fascinating. Can you make that happen? Yeah. That, you can also film that. That would make yeah, a great... Yeah, cameras will be there. We'll yeah, be there. that's a great documentary, a great podcast to have <laughs> Babe, the granddaughter of the old realtor, and to have the, the granddaughter of Al Capone. That would be fascinating. More interesting history from the producers of the new Milwaukee PBS documentary, Al Capone, Prohibition and Wisconsin, next on What's on Tap. I'm your host, Sandy Max, and true crime has captured the attention and curiosity of people for ages. And a 100 years ago, Prohibition was happening and organized crime was booming. Al Capone of the Chicago Outfit was a true boss, and Capone's story and connection to Wisconsin are being told in a new documentary that premieres on Milwaukee PBS tonight on Channel 10. Joining me in the studio are the duo who created this and friends of mine, Tracy Newman and Brian Ewig. And I'm so glad that you're both here. Now, Tracy, I asked you about your 
biggest revelation in producing this documentary. And for you, it was actually just picking up the phone and calling Al Capone's granddaughter. Absolutely. Yeah. And how she was nice. She was I, right away. I said, Brian, we've got to go interview her. I like her. She reminded me of my grandma. Absolutely. 100%. Which is yeah. a very wonderful way to work, but just very warming. quite unexpected. Yeah. And I, you know, you just kind of have an image in your head, I suppose, when you pick up the phone about who's going to answer. So I'm delighted that she was open and welcoming and helped you create this documentary by providing such great content and true history of her experience. Brian, what was the biggest revelation for you? Well, I think right off the bat, like I said, they had that correspondence between Al Capone and Bill Sell. But along with that, from the um, Manitowish Waters Historical Society, there's about seven images of Al Capone up in this cabin in Manitowish Waters, hanging out with his buddies, shooting guns, pointing guns, and just goofing around. And it's incredible. Casual owl. Absolutely. And that is the definitive proof that he was up there. He was here. He was at this cabin. It, so that was really cool to see. What are some of the other connections to Prohibition, Wisconsin, that you think are really important to tell as far as the economy or the culture or how it affected, like you said, immigrants coming? Yeah, yeah there's I, so I, many layers. I think there's still quite a bit of lessons that can be learned from Prohibition. One of the interesting things is that in 1927, actually, a number of years before Prohibition was repealed nationally, we actually, through a referendum, pulled our um, the Severson Act, which was the act enforcing Prohibition statewide. So by 1928, we were producing beer again, while the rest of the nation was still... And, you know, uh, states' rights. So people from Illinois were coming up here to get their booze, just like now people are going down to Illinois to get up, you know, to get other things. Marijuana, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So there's quite a bit of lessons still. It is fascinating what happens 100 years ago that's still okay, pretty much the same. Or, you know, different different substances, but you're right, you can see that. And I love that, again, half-hour documentary, so much in it, that there's still more to- more stories to tell. If you go to MilwaukeePBS.org, there are extras from this, including the 18th Amendment that you're talking about, the survival of the breweries that you're talking about, uh, the Lake Geneva region. How is that different than the Manitowish Waters region yeah. for Al Capone? So if you go to Lake Geneva, um, we're told that, you know, the, the talk of the town is that uh, allegedly the feds raided the Como Hotel, uh, Lake Como Hotel, and they threw the slot machines into Lake Como. So we actually went out on a boat <gasps> with a couple of divers and and a maritime historian um, who has sonar, right? And so we went looking for those slot machines and um, haven't told anyone. We won't even tell our managers what we what was found or not found. So when that one drops, you'll find out if we found the slot machines or not. That is a great tease. <laughs> that is on MilwaukeePBS.org. It will premiere January 30th, that digital extra called Lake Geneva Region. My favorite thing is when someone says, I learned something from it. And, you know, as being a history person, I love I love it when someone could say, I learned something from that. And enjoyed learning it yep. because you're creating this documentary in an engaging, entertaining way. How long have you been working on this project? 
Oh, my goodness. Well, we started this. We finished a shipwrecks documentary and said we were going to take some time off. Well, we, we took about two days off and decided, well, we have to do something else. So that was right before COVID because that aired at the end of February, and that was right before COVID. So we've actually started um, working on this uh, February of 2020 and never would have taken that long, but there was just so many travel restrictions and, as you know, everything else. So it's been about four years in the making. Well, excited to have it premiere on January 29th on Milwaukee PBS. You can find out all the details and catch up on those digital extras at MilwaukeePBS.org. Brian Ewig, Tracy Newman, thank you so much for being here and uh, keep up the great work at Milwaukee PBS. Thank you so much, Sandy. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so glad they joined me in the studio last week to just get the jump on this. It is so fascinating. Like they were explaining, history sometimes either seems to repeat itself or those patterns, but what a fascinating history of Al Capone here in Wisconsin and compelling compelling storytelling. A half-hour documentary, it's brand new, premieres on Milwaukee PBS tonight at 8 and again at 9.30 on Channel 10. Al Capone, Prohibition and Wisconsin, and those extra features. Again, I want to know if they found the slot machines. They've got several extra features on Milwaukee pbs.org. And I was telling Greg Metzik earlier this afternoon that I was planning to share this Prohibition Al Capone documentary on what's on tap tonight. And he perked up and he said, you know, the most stolen sign in Brookfield is Capone Court, where Al Capone actually lived. It was a vacation for him, vacation home for him just off Highway 18. And Greg Metzik may or may not have attempted to steal that Capone Court sign himself. Oh, my gosh. Capone Court sign. Try saying that. He might have tried to steal that Capone Court sign himself to impress a gal in his teenage years. We'll have to see if we can get more of that story. Coming up on What's on Tap, Go Brewing founder Joe Chura joins me to check in on my dry January progress. I'll be honest. He's also got some motivational tips to keep you going if you are. And uh, let us know how life in the non-alcoholic beer brewing business has been this month. And what's the punishment for stealing Dorothy's ruby slippers? Wizard of Oz fans, Oz historian and entertainment journalist Ryan Jay is going to join us with his reaction to today's sentencing of that thief, plus an update. He's been working on an Oz-related documentary. All that to look forward to, but first, from the WTMJ Breaking News Center, here's Jack Grau. What's on tap with Sandy Max is back on WTMJ. How are you? I'm Sandy Max, and I am so pleased uh, to report... That dry January has not been a drag of a January for me. It actually is much to my surprise, but I did have some good guidance just before January from Go Brewing founder Joe Chura. It was uh, an encouraging conversation then, and uh, he checked in last week and was like, Hey, how you been doing? You want to you wanna touch base? So I'm glad to welcome back to the show... Go Brewing founder Joe Chura. Joe, how are you? I am doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being so encouraging. Uh, for everyone who didn't hear our first conversation, uh, very cool for you to reach out because of your specific expertise and passion. Go Brewing is based in Naperville, Illinois, and you brew only non-alcoholic beer. And what motivated you to do that? Well... It was, a, it was a challenge very similar to dry January, which is what you're, you've obviously are going through at the tail end of. Congratulations. I'm sure we'll get into that in a yeah, minute. Yeah, yeah. And 
And uh, it, up until that point, I was drinking uh, many times per week. And I was under the cloud of alcohol for uh, uh, many, many years. And it was honestly pretty normal until I stopped during this challenge. And I started to feel incredible. I started to just have more motivation, be more mentally clear, started to lose weight. The bags under my eyes started to go away. And, and I just started to have less anxiety. And, and overall, I was just feeling kind of like I had superpowers. And I wanted more of that feeling. But I would have these massive cravings for beer and alcohol at like 5 o'clock after work on weekends. And if you think about it, it makes sense because I'm in my mid-40s. I've been drinking for decades at that point sure. and built up this habit and this condition. And I found that non-alcoholic beer was the only thing after trying like 100 things that just curbed my craving. It, it gave me this placebo effect that I was drinking regular beer and it tastes so much like the, the real thing that I just continued to do that. And then in looking at the market, looking at the opportunity that, ex- that uh, was out there and just knowing that, that I, I thought I could make something a little better with more variety and decided to go, to go at it. And I really wanted to create a product that not only helped me, but other people as well. And Joe, thank you for that because it has been very helpful to have non-alcoholic beer options. Cause just like you were saying, when you talk about, you know, how dry January has been for me, I realize how much of a habit it is to crack open a beer after work and have a laugh or crack open a beer. I had a, my first challenging day was eh, maybe January 8th or 9th. I had a challenging day mm-hmm. at the office, as we say. And I was like, I want to go home and gripe and gripe over a beer. I was like, wow. There's a that's an interesting note, you know, that I was automatically wanted to reach for that. So I did okay, but you let us sample some of the different varieties of non-alcoholic beer, ranging from IPAs and sours. And I told you I like dark, and you're like, we have a porter, you need to try it. So thank you for letting me sample because I don't know that I would have. I don't know. I just don't know that I would have tried non-alcoholic beer. But that was what I found was interesting that it was a habit. And I was okay to back off the habit or adjust that. But I did miss the taste of beer at times. So to know that I could go to a Go Brewing Pills. Uh, I also tried Blue Moon non-alcoholic. And I also tried mm-hmm, Lakefront Brewery, River East Dark. Or, or is it East East Side Dark? And I found that my key is I keep wanting to pour it in a glass and look at it. Yep. If a, keep it in the can and put a koozie on it, I literally have no different sensation. And I didn't, and I'm not drinking to get tipsy. I'm drinking for taste instead of effect, you know? It's, it's incredible. And congratulations too on making it through. What was your trick on, on the ninth then to get over that hump? And, and hey, you, you're non alcoholic beer to the rescue because, because I was like, I'm not. Case in point right there. Right. And I, and I've enjoyed it so much. Because the flavor and the sensation isn't really different, that I'm convinced that I will start getting non-alcoholic beer and maybe alternate. So I'm not just always drinking a fully sudsed beer, I guess, for for lack of a different way to describe it. Because the other thing that I've discovered is, as I because people have been following along on social media and asking me, like, okay, how you holding up? How you holding up? I've been surprised how many of my friends have also tried not only non-alcoholic beer and have several suggestions, but have also tried the non-alcoholic spirits like a gin and non-alcoholic wine. 
So it was interesting that it opened up that conversation because I feel like people only do this during dry January, that they are not really turning to non-alcoholic to satisfy that flavor. Isn't it fun, though, like exploring a new category, going down an aisle, you want to go down at a store and looking at these products that taste great, they're better for you. And then waking up like the first few (laughs) weeks that I woke up and I was like, wait, I'm not hungover. Like what? what's going on here? And then you just have a clear head and it's, and it's amazing that, and I've, I've, I've have fallen into this trap that we go back to drinking right uh, at all. Cause you feel so good the next day. And you know, there's we're we're not teetotalers here and there's a time and place where for sure. And what I think you're getting and what many do get out of dry January is this sense of mindfulness to, to really think about, yeah when you're drinking, not necessarily you can't drink, but just if you're, if you think a little ahead, you remember tomorrow, which is our saying here, that you're, you're gonna transform your life in a very meaningful way. And it's those incremental small steps, not the abstinence for 30 days, but the abstinence for 30 days allows you to see what it can be like. Yeah, it's January 29th now, so it's been four weeks for me. So I will share with you uh, some of the differences that I am noticed, either for better or worse. Uh, we are chatting with Go Brewing founder Joe Chura, who uh, is also very helpful. And I want to share more of your tips and how your tips helped me. So uh, stay with us. If you're uh, doing dry January or know somebody who has... Uh, you want to hear this next conversation with Go Brewing founder Joe Chura next on What's on Tap. Welcome back to What's on Tap on WTMJ. I'm Sandy Max. Dry January is dwindling down. Do you know somebody who's still dry? Maybe wet damp is going back to dry. We have the perfect guest tonight on What's on Tap. Go Brewing founder Joe Chura, who specializes in brewing non-alcoholic beer. But Joe, you also specialize in being very supportive. I signed up to get on your email list when I was browsing the flavors at your website, and I was very charmed. It wasn't every single day, but maybe every other day, that you send out an email of encouragement. And they were all very honest and genuine in your language and in your speaking. Like, you've walked this walk. Well, thank you very much. And and it's funny because none of those are plans. Like, I don't have, like, a, an outline that I look at in the beginning of the month. I just kind of feel uh, what I'm feeling and what I know at that point in time that others are going through to try to just give them encouragement and tips. And I, I love to learn and to observe others. And I believe success leaves clues. So I take every thing that I've learned across my journey from training with Navy SEALs to listening to Tony Robbins and everything in between to really just try and help others. Cause I know this stuff is hard too. It's not easy to give up something that you've been so accustomed to. Yeah. And like we were talking before, it is such a habit. And I'm going to tell you, it was so funny. You realize how much a habit you've built up over the years when we were here at the radio station sampling your non-alcoholic beers and the different flavors of Go Brewing. I handed a can to one of my teammates and Charlie was really excited and immediately popped it open. And I was like, oh, oh, I don't know if you can do that because the cans are designed with the label. You know, they look like regular beer, but it was just that stigma of like, oh, you can't do that here. You know, it's like, oh, don't drink a non-alcoholic beer in the newsroom. It just looked and felt like we were getting away with something. There's, you know, that stigma. So 
I feel like I could stand around in the backyard at a friend's party and either drink all non-alcoholic beer or just alternate. So I'm not, like you were saying, waking up a little more refreshed. I've noticed after going dry January for 28 days now, almost 29, I don't know that I slept better. I think my sleep might be attached to like stress and, and thinking out through things, but I definitely got compliments on my skin. So I'm like, aha, aha, so it is noticeable hydration and just not being as dehydrated because I we're just so used to rolling it into our world. I didn't realize how dehydrating regular drinking could be. No, I I totally agree. And that is a benefit you'll see in just a few weeks and the the sleeping too. You're right, because there's all these other external factors that affect us in our daily life, and and not drinking isn't like this magic thing that's going to cure all, but it certainly creates this opportunity to to take away this kind of cloud and to look at like our life and to examine we're, we're, what we need to work on. And one thing I know for sure is not drinking takes me closer to my goals and not further away, no matter what I'm trying to do, if that's being a better father, more more present husband, an entrepreneur, whatever it is, it it definitely helps lead you in the right direction. That's a great, I like that phrase. That's a great phraseology. So, Joe, before we go, I got to think that Dry January has been good at Go Brewing. How many flavors are you sold out of now? Oh, my God. Like, half our website is demolished. uh, (laughs) Well, congratulations, right? (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, we were selling a 1,000 cases a day on our website, up to a thousand cases on some days. I was watching these metrics and I just could not believe it, what I was seeing. And trucks were pulling up, taking our beer to to restaurants and uh, off-premise locations, stores and all that good stuff. But to see the websites and people across the nation purchasing our beer for, for this dry January and, and these moments, it was just an incredible feeling. I'll have to see what's left on the shelves at Woodman's, Joe. We'll have to see. Uh, do you expect yeah. a lull in sales after January? You know, last year I did, and we didn't have it. So uh, do I expect selling a 1,000 cases a, a day? No. But what's nice about February is is everyone's gearing up for March, so I, I expect sales to start climbing. And I do think this is a lifestyle thing, and this isn't a fad. You know, people want to be healthier, and you're seeing the benefits. You're yeah. going to talk about them to your friends, and there's going to be a trickle-down effect from this. Oh, uh, Joe, thanks you, thank you so much for being part of my dry January journey and making it a lot easier because the flavor of beer is something we tend to enjoy here in Wisconsin. But I, I do realize that I am drinking beer because I like the flavor. I'm not just drinking beer to just be social or to get buzzed up. It, it is also a flavor thing for me. So thank you very much. I'm glad to have met you. Uh, this is not the last you'll hear of me. Any chance you're coming up to Milwaukee over the summertime? Oh, I'll I'll definitely I'll definitely be there. And thank you so much. You made my night by stating that I helped you during this process and I'm so proud of you as well. Oh, thank you, Joe. Go Brewing founder Joe Chura. And what is your website to see what's left on your shelves? GoBrewing.com, go Amazon, and then a bunch of places around the Milwaukee area now. Wonderful. Well, congratulations. Happy dry January to you, Joe. Take care. Thank you. And next I get to Lay out the 
I would say the red carpet. Maybe it's the golden carpet. Uh, we're going to welcome to the studio Ryan Jay. He's an Oz historian and an entertainment journalist. You've probably seen him on the Morning Blend, but I wanted to invite him specifically into the studio because the Wizard of Oz is in the news. But you're going to hear an essential Wizard of Oz song. It's the song you need to hear next on WTMJ. And now, feast your ears. This is the song you need to hear. Most blokes going to be playing at 10. These go to 11. We've been talking about the Wizard of Oz today because it's in the news. It's in the news because the ruby slippers were stolen from a museum in Minnesota a while ago. And today was the day that the thief got sentenced. And I think it's about time. And and the whole story is kind of bizarre. And we want to get to chatting about this strange crime that has a backstory i thought i would play the perfect song and i think we have it it's an iconic song from the wizard of oz the song that judy garland sings at the beginning of the film isaac do we have it we'll see okay let's try Wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where you just make you think of the film the wizard of oz i like very many other people the wizard of oz is one of my all-time favorite films watched it as a kid i as the saying goes this might date me but i do remember when i was really little when the wizard of oz was on i think it was cbs like every easter and that was a big occasion before vcrs and streaming and all that so that was a really essential part of my childhood. So just hearing that, and then it was a film that I my parents loved as well. So this intergenerational shared experience. So The Wizard of Oz is very sentimental to me and all of those quotes. And the ruby slippers in the headlines today got me sentimental and it also got me fired up. And it got me to thinking, I know in my friendship circle, an Oz historian how many people can say that? And 
entertainment journalist. His name is Ryan Jay, and I've invited him into the studio. Ryan, turn your microphone on. There you go. Welcome to the studio. What does Somewhere Over the Rainbow make you feel as an Oz historian when you hear that? Gosh. Are you you over it? No pun intended? (laughs) Hashtag over it. Um, (laughs) Sandy, first of all, it's so great to be here with you. I adore you. I'm such a fan, and I love you as a friend, so it's it's just really fun to get to join you in studio. Well, then this next half hour is going to be really fun. (laughs) Absolutely. Gosh, it's it's. I don't know that I can even answer that question, because The Wizard of Oz is such a big part of my life, such a defining part of my life, not only as a fan... You know, uh, growing up like you did, seeing it only annually on television, you know, the film before even VHS or home video or digital or anything. Let's throw laser created out there right. as well while we're going through eight all track. the retro. Come yeah. on, yeah. Uh, I did just celebrate a birthday, so age, aging by the second, right? Um, but I think it did create that hunger. But then at the, at the core... The Wizard of Oz, based on the 1900 book published in Chicago first, uh, written by L. Frank Baum, illustrates Dorothy's journey, which is a story that is so universally uh, relatable across generations, across cultures, and speaks to everyone, and we all project upon it who we are. So that song, Over the Rainbow, captures something really magnificent, uh, especially at the time in 1939, this year, actually, 2024, is the 85th anniversary of the film. Wow. And uh, it was wow, re-released. Wow, that's sobering. Mm-hmm. That's why we were just talking about Al Capone 100 years ago, and now you've got this film... 1939 mm-hmm. and and still wow. has a timeless quality you know nothing no digital effects everything was practical that tornado was made by hand and was tactical as was everything you saw in the film and the, a lot of those special effects look better than things like jason and the argonauts which were state of the art <laughs> at the time you it's know true. honestly it's true that it can still speak to audiences today i mean i went to a screening of it uh at marcus theaters last night because in honor of the anniversary it's returned to theaters for a couple days just this year and uh, i think t- tonight and then on the 31st of january there's there's a performance as well oh. check your local listings because it's great on the big screen obviously but even with like the backdrops that are painted and the rest of it it still invites you in that suspension of disbelief is palpable and and it's those songs those those songs that just there are places in the world i've learned where people know over the rainbow they don't even know who who dorothy is judy garland or the story of the wizard of oz so the song really uh, over the rainbow quite universal mm-hmm. well ryan jay is going to be my guest for the next half hour because we're going to dig into this crime the stolen shoes the ruby slippers that made the news today but you do want to join us on the youtube stream because ryan not only is dressed to the nines but he's brought in some wizard of oz collectibles to show us in the studio so join us on the wtmj video stream on youtube at wtmj.com but first we turn to the wtmj breaking newsroom and jack Grau. This is What's on Tap on WTMJ, a show that focuses on culture and creativity here in Wisconsin and around the world. And we are lucky enough here in Wisconsin to have a resident Oz historian. He's also an entertainment journalist who you've probably seen on TV on The Morning Blend and on TMJ4. Ryan Jay, welcome to What's on Tap. Glad to be here, Sandy. Thanks so much for having me. It is absolutely my pleasure. And again, uh, the WTMJ.com video stream on our YouTube channel. Ryan has come dressed appropriately. As an Oz historian, you would think he has 
the right clothing. Oh, yes, he does. He is actually wearing ruby slippers because that's what we're going to talk about with the Wicked Witch striped socks. And he's got a flannel. Yes, a flannel that has the Wicked Witch's ankles and shoes. And what's written on the back? I'll get you, my pretty. Excellent. So if you're, you are repping. You are absolutely right. I sure am. I've got the glasses and the bracelet and the ring and the phone case and the backpack and the journal. And I brought it all for you, Sandy. I love it. Thank you. And and usually as a Southern gal, I'm like, I don't want to impose. I'm like, I know this was nothing. You either just like swept off a shelf, put it in your well, you know, well, you Wizard have... of Oz themed backpack and just brought it off. Full disclosure, we're friends. Yes. And you have contributed to my Oz collection very lovingly, you and your mother. Yes. And I cherish those glasses from Aww. the 50th anniversary that you gifted to me. Um, But, you know, when you see my condo... The two bedroom place. It's not just in you know. It, I have the collectibles everywhere and the artwork, and it's not just you know. It's floor to ceiling, but it's 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 very contained and it's very displayed judiciously and like a more like a museum than a sure <laughs> yeah or like Alice in Wonderland <laughs> threw up store. in my condo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ryan, uh, when I saw this news a couple days ago that today was going to be the sentencing of the thief who stole one of the remaining pairs of the ruby slippers. From the movie The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. a pair that Judy Garland actually wore in the film. Yes. I caught up on this. I mean, I remembered it, but it was like, okay, let me refresh myself on this crime. Mm-hmm. I thought, I need to talk with you, see what you know about this crime and what you remember about it, and also get your reaction since this is so beloved. Uh, the summary of the crime maybe do you know it better than i do Just, i may i mean it's almost okay. 20 years ago now um it was 2005 uh where they you were do. stolen you do know he is an oz historian okay <laughs> yeah it was um it was in grand rapids minnesota at the judy garland museum they housed a pair on loan from michael shaw who is a private collector of one of four pairs remaining of judy garland's ruby slippers screen worn in the film there's a fifth pair that was screen tested not worn in the film that um was owned by actress debbie Allen that looked like Arabian oh, wow. slippers. Um, you can Google them if you want to see. You may have heard of the Google. But uh, this pair on display was not very well protected on plexiglass, and the museum did not have a great uh, security system. And there was a former mob, a retired mobster who knew there was such a thing, but 10 years out of the streets, it had been 10 years since he was in jail, had retired and given up the, the crime, uh, decided and was tempted to go back in for one more thing, one more theft, when a friend alerted him to the lack of security at the Judy Garland Museum. In I Minnesota. mean, this is a movie in itself. When it I is. heard about the mob angle to it. Okay, so yeah. I'm glad that you know this. You're telling sure. the story perfectly. I love this. Yeah, they, they break in. Um, he breaks in one night because he believed, get this, the man never, his, by the way, his name, Terry John Martin, never saw The Wizard of Oz. <gasps> did not know of their cultural <laughs> significance, apparently, um, which would How perhaps explain, possible? though, wouldn't that maybe explain why he turned to a life of crime? Sure. Parents, he didn't have the good guidance. Show your children The Wizard of Oz. You'll, you're, you're contributing to the betterment I was of society. Saying, yeah, you, could, you could be teaching the right <laughs> and wrong. Right? And so, um, you know, he, he breaks in, he steals them. He thought they were real rubies. Right. Yeah, they're that made was out of the sequence. motivation. Right. But there, there are some glass beads on the bow work of the slippers that he thought were real rubies. Of course, he gets them, finds out that they're not. They're glass and sequins and, and wants nothing to do with them. Like gives 48 them back to hours. The, right. Like he's exactly. Done with exactly. So he reaches out to his, you know, the mole or whoever else that tipped him <laughs> off, gives them back to him. And they're, they're just missing. And in the meantime, the conspiracy... Th- theories over the years that flew around uh, from the man who donated them, you know, possibly setting up this 
uh, to, to try to rake in the insurance, insurance money. Insurance money. And or, the man who was curating the museum, museum has yeah. been under the microscope. Everyone was accused and looked at the FBI was involved and actually were the ones to recover them in 2018 through a sting operation when someone did alert the uh, insurance company. Operation Judy. What was right? the name of that Seri- sting? Wouldn't you like to know? God. <laughs> I would have been really good as operation a spy Operation Emerald City to find the ruby <laughs> there you slippers. Go, right, right. Or, or, or there's no place like home. Um, and we could go with in a million ways but so so they so get the fbi them. gets yeah, involved 2018 they, mm-hmm. they do a sting operation they get them back there they are and they're authenticated and and finally the truth comes out um at first he pled not guilty and then changed his plea and the sentencing just came down and he's basically time served because he's 76 years old he has about six months left to live he's in hospice care not doing very well and so um I have a quote from Chief U.S. District Judge Patrick Schlitz Mm -hmm. that his crime was, according to this federal judge, quote, extraordinary in its stupidity, selfishness and impact. It's so true. I mean... Gosh, how do you how do you evade that film, The Ruby Slippers? That's, that's the real crime. You you think his real crime is that he's never watched The Wizard of Oz, right? Not that he exactly. stole these shoes yes, and, yes. and threw them out after forty eight hours. Uh, but supposedly, yes, this this man is in very ill health, mm-hmm. and part, the judge also noted that. He didn't commit any other crimes since he stole the slippers from the Judy Garland Museum. (laughs) So that was part of it. Uh, But I hate to make light of it, but in his poor health, if he has one to six months, uh, he's also been ordered to pay $300 a month to the museum in restitution. Mm Yes, and no, so not sure how, that's what, how that maybe they'll buy some more some new glass or a better security system. But it's got to go somewhere. I mean, it's it's just it's a ridiculously um, kind of you you can't write this stuff. If you wrote it, it would sound that it's that like it's not Over true. The top. Yeah, and then here's the other thing mm-hmm. is not really understanding the value of these. You've mentioned that there are four oh, right. there to are, five pairs. Yeah, and they're appraised Several at, million dollars. Mm-hmm. What's the appraisal value? Uh, when they were last appraised, $3.5 million, but they've got to be worth more than that. If you think about one pair that was purchased, co-purchased by George Clooney, Leo DiCaprio, and Steven Spielberg that is in the um, mu- the Academy Museum in Hollywood. There's oh. another pair that's in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And then there's a private collector that has the fourth pair. We don't know who has that. But um, How much do I love that this pair of Ruby Slip brought together Clooney, Spielberg, and DiCaprio. These right? three guys yeah, decided, all three this is iconic. But, but just like the, <laughs> they course. went of... Of our wealth that we've mm-hmm. gotten through the film industry, this is kind of how we give back. We make sure that this is preserved in the Academy Museum, kind of like the Smithsonian. Right. And there are props and costumes from many movies that are even bigger than The Wizard of Oz, if you think of Star Wars and the rest of it. But this is an item that in of itself was featured as magical on screen. Yeah. So the lore around it is even more spectacular. And in the original book, they were, do you know what color the the shoes were Dorothy's magic shoes were in the book that the movie's based on I they were not ruby what they were, were not they? red they were silver Ooh. Mm-hmm. but MGM making one of the very first Technicolor films thought that silver didn't pop very much off the yellow brick road so they changed the well, sure, ruby especially red. as you're going from that sepia tone into the Technicolor exactly. world and yeah. the red on that yellow is now the thing of Vibrant. iconography yes it is so I want to ask you about Wisconsin connections to the Wizard of Oz uh, but I do want to ask you one more question on this crime mm-hmm. was justice served Sure. I'm just glad <laughs> they're back. I always my biggest fear was that you know because there were rumors they're gonna they found up they were found in a in a river they've been destroyed Aww. someone just threw them out burned them whatever so I'm just glad that they're back. <laughs> Honestly, I think a lot of people are, especially the the museum in Grand Rapids, of Minnesota. Course. Ryan J. Oz historian and. 
entertainment journalist. Joining me for the next 15 minutes as we talk about some very special connections of Wisconsin to the Wizard of Oz culture. That's next on What's on Tap. You can just see them skipping towards the Emerald City. It is the music from The Wizard of Oz, the film. I am Sandy Max. On What's on Tap, we are joined in the WTMJ studio by, I didn't know this was an actual title you could have, Oz historian and entertainment journalist, Ryan Jay. Ryan, what exactly is an Oz historian? Well, I think it's when you can actually kind of monetize or as part-time career your work in the world of Oz entertainment. So, for example, I've interviewed a lot of stars of stage, screen, uh, big and small, of Oz entertainments. And I travel nationally to Comic-Cons and universities and theaters and museums and do multimedia presentations about The Wizard of Oz and related content. So, And this is a piece of literature mm-hmm. by Frank Elbaum. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yes. You know, English lit. You know, this is not... It was, yeah, I mean, L. Frank Baum published it in 1900. There were actually 13 sequels. It's the Harry Potter of its time in terms of the sense that they just had to keep printing it and reprinting it and the rest of it first printed in Chicago. And it's also classified as the first American fairy tale. Ah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a... That's encapsulates it perfectly. Yes. Because so, they were all from, you know, everything from Snow White and Cinderella. They all came from Europe. Interesting. How lovely. Well, I'm glad that you have this wealth of knowledge and that there's an appetite to learn what you know and that you've been able to amalgamate your knowledge as an entertainment journalist from the different productions and cultural items, whether it's on stage with Wicked or the different films or the animated or all All these other and the collectibles that you've brought in that are connected with Barbie. And it's it's Mm -hmm. uh, it is a full on phenomenon and cultural thing. So. Of the Wizard of Oz phenomenon, what are one or two super Wisconsin connections? Well, I love that um, the Oscar, the one Oscar that the film won um, was for Herbert Stothard, who wrote the original score for the film. And he had a summer cottage in Okachi Lake. And he was born in Milwaukee in 1885 on September 11th, my father's birthday. Um, <laughs> Coroner Munchkin Meinhardt Robbie, who was the as coroner, I must ever, you know, that guy. Um, <laughs> he had the, he had the certificate hat. of death and the yeah. hat and the rest of it. He grew up uh, on a farm, a family farm near Watertown, Wisconsin. Really? And uh, there was a special advance. I love that, you know, Oconomowoc, it makes a big deal about the Wizard of Oz and takes ownership of it. And rightly so, because there was a special advance screening, uh, quote unquote, premiere, premiere of the film on Saturday, August 12th, 1939 at the Strand Theater, where the old theater mall uh, now stands on East Wisconsin Avenue. Tickets were just 25 cents for a matinee, 4 cents for the evening, and Oconomowoc has really um, honored that. They put out uh, statues now, and there's murals, and they do annual uh, parades through you know, the town where they, where they celebrate it, and they do call it the official premiere, but it's really not, because the actual you know premiere was in Hollywood. Uh, um, which was on, um, sorry, it was August 15th at Grumman's Chinese Theater. Oh. Right? So that was the actual legendary. real Hollywood premiere. But also... What was one, a Hollywood premiere? One that's, day, that's the word you put in front uh, of it. Yes. But there's also one day before the, uh, that Oconomowoc had that special advanced screening. Yeah. It actually did show on screens in Appleton, <gasps> in Kenosha. And then also Cape Cod, but that's not in Wisconsin. We have to talk about that. So we've got like three cities in Wisconsin but that, that had these special. Right, yes. It is very spectacular. And was it 
the event that we imagine it would have been? Was this a highly anticipated film at that time? It was because The Wizard of Oz was inspired to be made based on the success of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Prior to that, there had not been feature-length films marketed toward the family and to children. They didn't think that there was any business or box office there. And when that was such a hit, MGM said, wait, we want a piece of the action. You know how it is. One movie is a hit. One superhero film makes box office. Now I've got a million of them. We can't get enough, right? It's like, what the right? One musical doesn't do well at the box office, and they stop making them all together. You know, it's a very fickle industry. So when Snow White did well, and MGM got wind of there's a market here, there's an audience for family entertainment, they optioned The Wizard of Oz, made this film for Judy Garland. There's that urban legend that they considered, that they wanted, um, they tried to cast Shirley Temple first. Not true. They considered Ooh. her. She never actually got an offer. She was not actually ever attached to the film. Um, but... Uh, the movie was made and of course it was a sensation I mean those songs instantly yes. um, likable and memorable and then also one of the first Technicolor films and not only that it was made in film but starts out not in color and then becomes color as Dorothy enters Oz so that imagine seeing that in a, in a time where you're not used to seeing that sort of stuff with your eyes in and the, the theater artwork of a Disney film mm -hmm. it is animated right this is a fantasy where you are truly transported Live with action. the characters. Mm -hmm. Yes. And those costumes and the makeup and the rest of it, it still stands the test of time. You look at kids that are watching it today, even up against all the live action Disney remakes that we're seeing now. You know, so it, it, it's timeless. I am super excited to talk with you as an Oz historian. You are creating more lore and an authoritative documentary. Will you tell us more about that? I'd love to. Excellent. Ryan Jay shares more about his Oz documentary in progress next on What's on Tap. It is What's on Tap on WTMJ. I'm Sandy Max in the studio with Oz historian and entertainment journalist Ryan Jay. And Ryan, with the Baird Center opening in May, and Adina Menzel as the star attraction mm. you must be excited that such a huge star in the oz constellation i mean i cannot get enough of the woman i saw her 13 <laughs> times in previews in wicked i was at opening night of wicked i've seen her in concert i've interviewed her four times i love that woman and what a treat that she's coming here again she's you know she's toured and stopped here before but for this private concert and what what a coup for the uh, barrett center yeah it's a way to certainly christen the new convention center expansion mm -hmm. so you as an oz historian have all of this knowledge and you share it at conventions and with me on the radio and on TV. But you found a new way through film to share some of your knowledge. What is the documentary you're working on? Well, I have a degree in broadcasting. And then prior to working in broadcasting, I worked in New York as a TV director and producer for Bravo and Showtime and Nickelodeon and MTV. And so I have these skills in storytelling visually. And now that I'm broadcasting in an Oz historian, I had the opportunity when I met Aaron Harburg, whose great-grandfather, Yip, is the lyricist of Over the Rainbow and all the songs of the Wizard of Oz, oh, was wow. working on telling his story and honoring them. Because, you know, you know who Andrew Lloyd Webber is and Stephen Sondheim, but if you ask people who wrote the Wizard of Oz, people don't know it. So Aaron um, and I were working together at an Oz event, and he invited me to direct the film. And over the last several years, we've been interviewing celebrities, Oscar winners, Grammy winners, Tony winners, uh, Emmy winners, and the rest of it about their connection to the song, the story of um, Harold Arlen, composer, and Yip Harburg, lyricist, and about the cultural 
impact and legacy of Over the Rainbow. And we are completing the film this year. Wow. After much time. It's called Song of the Century. And Indeed. I'm very excited about it. I just played it as yes, the song you, you should hear tonight. And that's so funny. I asked you what it meant to you. And you I automatically... Couldn't. I well, couldn't answer it. Well, no, but you did. And, and it, you've, you're going to prove how much it means to so many people mm-hmm. and all the reasons why. Because music really does bring people together. And for all that there is known about it, we found some, some new things. We found some breaking news. Well, I am excited. How can we follow along on the progress of Song of the... Is it Song of the Century? Song of the Century is the documentary. You can follow me on social media at Ryan J Reviews, and my website is RyanJReviews.com. Ex- and I'm every Friday on the Morning Blend. Yes, exciting. And uh, I'll have to have you come back to chat maybe about the SAG Awards or the Academy Awards. All of the above. Pick your brain on those things. <laughs> Ryan J, Oz historian and entertainment journalist, thank you so much. Thank you for so much, Sandy Max. Me. If you missed any of this conversation or you think somebody should hear it, it will be podcasted later tonight at WTMJ.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also hear... Joe Chura of Go Brewing if you're going through dry January. And also remember, MilwaukeePBS.org if you want to catch up on Al Capone, Prohibition, and Wisconsin. I'm Sandy Max. Bucks next on WTMJ.